The Comedy Channel. Funny. Free. You are listening to the Constant Comedy Podcast with Art Bell and Vinny Favalli. Hey, welcome to the Constant Comedy Podcast. I'm Art Bell and I'm here with Vinny Favalli. Yeah, and we're going to be talking to a producer today, one of the original producers at Comedy Channel. Now, I'm talking, we're talking like 30 plus years ago. His name is Scott Carter, and Scott, if you haven't heard his name before, you will never forget it, because he is one of the great producers, television producers of all time. Vinny, isn't that right? He's, uh, uh, he's terrific, and he was just starting out. He had a background in stand-up comedy, and he came up with uh, th- that group of comedians like Susie Essman. I forgot what the comedy club was, but we'll talk about it. I think it was the comic strip, wasn't it? The comic strip, yeah, that might have been it. Anyway, he, he's terrific, but he, he segued into producing, and he was producing the first talk show that we did together for Comedy Channel, Night After Night with Alan Havey, among other things. Right. And, you know, it was his first shot at the thing, and he was terrific, and the show was terrific. And, uh, you know, I can't wait to talk to him. One of, the, one of the things I want to find out, and this is a conversation I never had with Scott or anybody else like him. You and I were up at uh, HBO headquarters. Right. And <laughs> on, Scott, on sixth and Avenue. the talent was down, you know, with Stu Smiley, who put the whole thing together, down at the studio. It was called HBO Downtown Productions. It was HBO's right. kind of first production right. company. Right. And I, there was this, you know, sort of acknowledged we were the suits, they were the right. talent and, you know, never the twain will, will meet. Although I was kind of friendly with Scott and some of the other guys. So it wasn't a complete wipeout, but I'm just interested. I never heard it from his side or from their side, what it was like to be the talent against the suits. So we're looking forward to that. And the interesting thing is this suit named Art Bell had the original idea for Comedy Central. It was written a terrific book, by the way. Sorry, I have to plug your book, Constant you. Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. He's not your traditional suit. So he had the idea. And yes, thanks to wonderful people like Stu Smiley and, and Michael Fuchs, who bought into the idea. He was the head of HBO at the time. The team that these guys put together found people like Scott and Alan Havey, you know, a, a wonderful group of producers and comedians to put the network together. And while, while we were trying to keep the network alive by selling it to advertisers and cable system operators, Scott and his team were doing their thing downtown. So it's going to be really interesting to get their perspective. Scott is, I will find in talking to Scott that he is the epitome of the classic creative producer and i'm real excited to talk to him yeah me too all right let's get him here art and i met our next guest during the launch of the comedy channel in 1989 where he developed and executive produced our late night talk show night after night with alan havey a credit i might add that is not on his imdb or any profile what are you hiding scott Scott Carter is a writer and producer, best known for HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher, Comedy Central's Root of All Evil, and The Conspiracy Zone with Kevin Nealon, among others, and again on ABC's version of Politically Incorrect, also with Bill Maher. While writing and producing for that show, Scott garnered eight Emmy nominations and won three consecutive Cable Ace Awards for Best Talk Series. 
Art, don't you have one of those Cable East Awards? One, I think I have three consecutive, actually. Two. <laughs> we, we had we had three consecutives for best talk variety, and we unseated Larry King, who had dominated that that category. Uh, but then, uh, irony of ironies, then as soon as cable gets really folded into mainstream broadcasting, the Cable Ace Award goes away. Yes. And so for a long time, my daughters uh, thought that I was kidding when I was telling them that this, no, this award actually exists. And uh, they thought I was just making it up and I had ornaments on my mantelpiece uh, as, as, as an attempt to impress them, but they were not being fooled. So, so they expire, who knew? Uh, in addition to these, Cable Ace Awards. He's produced and written shows for a wide variety of talent, including Candace Bergen, Carrie Fisher, and that incredibly funny Al Gore. Scott was also a pioneer in the talk back genre of TV shows would Curb the Discussion. That was a unique talk show he created and produced with Larry David that was an offshoot of Curb Your Enthusiasm. His film credits include TBS's Earth to America and Comedy Central's Ain't It Cool News. He's also a playwright with two one-man shows that he's performed all over the world, and he's been known to give the occasional guest sermon at the First Congressional Church of Los Angeles. Please welcome Scott Carter. It is great to talk to you and see you both again. And um, that, uh, so, yeah, and let, let's, we can just jump in on this. Yes, because, go, we are off. Because, well, let me start with um, a memory that I have of Art, which Art will probably not remember. There's no reason why he should, but it was a huge step in my career, which is I had been a struggling stand-up comic and I did this one-man show called Heavy Breathing that was a combination of two things. At first, it was about the fact that in the late 70s, early 80s, during the Boogie Nights era, I worked in a pornography factory in North Hollywood. So that was one act. The second act was about a near-death asthma attack that I had. Um, and so the title, Heavy Breathing, united the porn and, and the asthma. Um, so what happened was two people came to see me do that in New York. And that's how I got my first two jobs in TV. One of them was a fellow named Steve Scrovan, who was a stand-up later uh, with um, uh, Everybody Loves Raymond for the entire run of it as a writer and producer. And the other was Alan Havey. And uh, so Steve got offered a talk show on MTV. That was my first job in TV in 1988. And then the next was Alan got offered this late night spot only because Paula Poundstone dropped out. And, and, I and- I didn't know that. And, and there was, I mean, this is all such happenstance, um, which is Paula Pansman was supposed to be, do, be doing the late night show. She drops out, they hire Alan Havey, but they don't have time to hire a producer. So Alan is told he can get three people to be writers, two or three. So I, I, I was one choice, Nick Bakai was another choice. And then Michael Patrick King, was the third was the third choice, but I don't think he got to hire three. So Michael actually then went and did the the, the Rachel Sweet show, um, on and there was this incredible collection of people which we'll talk about it at the, at this one office on Twenty Third Street between Park and Lex. Anyway, so so Alan is is uh, hired to do the late night show. He's just moved from New York to Los Angeles. So he's not living in New York anymore. He's got an apartment in LA. Now he's got this job in New York. He's got to go out to LA and he's got to get all this stuff and then find a place back in New York. Meanwhile, there's no producer. I know that they were looking at um, 
oh, I forget her name now, but she was Spalding Gray's girlfriend oh, I remember and then that. wife. And there was an attempt to get her to be a producer, but I think she said no. Anyway, so what happened was I had a background. I'd run a theater group in Arizona that's still going on after 52 years. I'd run a theater group in Arizona. I'd, I'd been the editor of a trade publication serving the apparel industry. So I knew how to kind of organize an office. So while Alan's gone, we had, uh, you know, maybe a staff of four or five. I just kind of start organizing everyone. Then Alan comes back, having found a New York apartment, moved all this stuff back. And the first day that he got back, all of the five or six shows had to give a presentation. Well, ours was the best presentation out of all the five or six. And yet Alan hadn't been there for any of it. <laughs> I had just started organizing everything. So then it was Tommy Schlamme who had been hired as a consultant to, the, to this fledgling, nourishing, uh, being nourished comedy channel, this bold experiment. And so he then, and he is, so I consider him to be my main mentor and I get together with him once every year or two. And I, whenever I see him, I will tell him, you know, I owe my being a producer to you. He's a director, right? Like he's a, he's a director, yes. Emmy winning director for the West Wing and for ER. So the walk and talk, that was Tommy Shalami. Wow. Okay, and, his, and he's married to Christine Lottie, wonderful actress, and he's just one of the great guys in the world. And um, so anyway, so he's hired as, as a consultant at the early stages before the launch. So he tells Stu um, Smiley and um, Julian Goldberg and the others, probably you are, hey, Scott's kind of producing right now. Why don't you bring in an associate producer underneath him with television experience so he doesn't not do something because he doesn't know what to do, but then just let him go. And so that's what happened. So Sue Fellows was brought in underneath me and she was great she's to work terrific. with. And then we, and then we, you know, began to fill out a staff and we went, you know, for years and years and years. And it was such a joyous experience. And it was also this time to just be as creative as possible because nobody was really watching. And, and because there, there was so much of an emphasis on just quantity of content, you just got to keep doing stuff. So anybody who had a kind of imp improv, I had a background in improv. Alan had a very strong background in stand-up, of course. Uh, and so we, and Nick Bakai had a background in both. He had a background in acting. Uh, and I think he'd done some stand-up. He'd actually been part of a rock band called Bangkok in his college days. Uh, and, and, and also improv. So in other words, the three of us were able to be doing things where we could generate a tremendous amount of content because we were able to work off the cuff. And you were also, you were launching a show at the same time we were launching a network. So yeah, all eyes right. were not on you. That's, oh, oh, we, we were so happy. I have to say, I'm glad to hear you were happy. Let me finish the Art Bell story. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. So after, so after this day where Alan comes back and all six programs present their, uh, present and uh, this little thing that I've still got, I think I've still got the little recording of this, or maybe I don't now, but anyway. And then Tommy says, let's copy the producer. Anyway, this was during the time when we were going back and forth between the Grace building and the HBO building. Remember we had- Yeah, was uh, a connected like door. Elevator yeah, yeah. was two, uh, two buildings. For our listeners, it was two buildings that were adjacent, but the floors didn't match. 
and the elevators didn't match. So you kept having to go to these crossovers to get from one building to the other. Anyway, so I get into a uh, elevator one time uh, during this, like that day or the next day after these presentations. And there are all these guys in suits. And the guy who I later find out is Art Bell is noticing me and then says to someone else, and I don't know who it was, could have been Dick Beers or John Newton or somebody, whoever else it was, this is the hero. Because I was sort of giving the first instance of here's entertaining program, programming that could be, you're not wasting hundreds of millions of dollars for nothing. We're gonna get some gold here. And anyway, that made me feel so incredibly accepted and, and I was a stand-up at the time. I was not a good stand-up. I didn't have the skill of someone like, like Alan or, or Bill Maher. And um, anyway, then I began, but I thought this is not gonna last because the first job I had in TV with MTV, we were promised three years on the air and we were fired after eight weeks at Christmas. That'll, ha that'll happen. I figured that's what TV was. What show was that, Scott? It was a show called Mouth to Mouth. And it came up after Couch Potato had been a big hit. So now MTV was looking at, they'd never looked before at original programming. So they did um, Couch Potato with Colin Quinn and Ken Ober. And then they thought, let's do a talk show. And I can go into why this uh, was a, uh, it was a terrible concept for a show and that they couldn't make their mind up as to what they wanted it to be. So we had this a live show every night for an hour. We had a live band. We had a sidekick to my friend Steve, who, and they'd never met, they had no chemistry. We had that sidewalk artist, Hani, in New York, who used to do Leonardo, uh, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, uh, Michelangelo. He would do them in chalk. Anyway, they hired him to be doing a mural on the side wall. Then they had theme audiences, which was a disaster. Because, for instance, the first, the opening show, we had Cher, and there was a theme audiences of witches and warlocks. But the witches and warlocks hated Cher because she was in Witches of Eastwick, which they thought defamed <laughs> witches and warlocks. So in other words, here comes on Cher, and the audience hates her, and it's a unified audience, and they all know each other. So when you have 40 or 50 people, it was a small studio, but when you have 50 people who know each other, I don't care how big the star is, they are by themselves. Oh, that's so sad. Uh, and, and so, so, and then, and then phone-ins, and they had somebody in the audience to be getting questions from the audience. They had a thousand variables and what, and it was, to me, it was a clinic in, in how not to produce a television show. And I remember telling myself, if I ever get the chance to produce, it's going to be about one thing. It's, it's gonna have a center and everything is gonna focus on the center. So for night after night, that was Alan, the world of Alan's imagination, his humor, every guest related to Alan in some way. We had a lot of standups like George Carlin or Jerry Seinfeld or actors who he admired, directors who he admired. But, but, but this first experience was just perfect for me because it told me everything to avoid if I got the chance to do it myself. Now I know where the audience of one came from. That was a brilliant thing. Tell the audience about that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the we were in a, we're in this. As you both know, we were in this empty studio that was in the middle of the floor, the sixth floor at one twenty East Twenty Third Street. So the the 
writers and hosts were on one side of the floor, on one side of the, of the studio. And on the other side of the studio was where the administration was. And very soon the creatives on the one side started uh, referring to the other, the, the, the north end as the dark side. <laughs> oh, you're going over to the dark side because that's where the people who wore suits, that's where the people who canceled shows, that's where the people who, who made decisions were officed. And um, so, um, and then I was, I would, I would, so, so anyway, so there became this kind of division between one and the other. What was the question again, Vinny? Where we Before we get to the question, I just want to put a button at the end of what may be my biggest ego boost of the week. You, when I said, this is our hero, you, you took something away from that that you, you, you remember? A validation. Oh, I went home years that, later. First thing I said to my wife that night, guess what happened today? Oh, man. I you know, that. and, and I, I've never told you that. And it was, it was the first step that maybe I wasn't going to get fired. The thing wasn't going to be canceled. Maybe that the whole thing was going was gonna to work out, at least for us for a while. At least for us. for I didn't, uh, I didn't know about any of the other shows. I didn't know the other hosts yet. Um, that's great. You know, I but, don't. But it was, but it was so, it was so affirming. That's so nice. I, I don't exactly remember it, but I do remember the gestalt, and the gestalt was, I was looking for a savior, <laughs> because we had started this channel, and it was really kind of fuzzy at the beginning. Am I right, Vinny? I mean, we 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 had all these things in mind, but it really, you know, it really was kind of like you know, an amorphous, ungelled thing. And then I was always looking for a little gel. And I, I remember seeing you and I remember, you know, there were some other things where you just say, yes, that is going to help us get through this. That is going to help us launch and that's going to help us get us successful. So yeah, it's very, very likely that I said something like that. Once. Well, let me also expand in that what you all, I mean, the original notion was it was going to be like MTV. Right. And the original notion was you were going to have you were going to hire a host, and then you were going to hire maybe one other or two other, either a producer writer or a writer producer, who was going to work with that person. But basically, they were going to be tossing to clips. What you guys did that was so wise, and it was so reinforcing to all of us working there, because we we basically everybody just basically lived there for the first several months, was as something began to work you withdrew, you evolved and withdrew from the original concept, which wasn't gonna work as much. And so I remember the first uh, week or so or first month of a, a, night after night being on the air, it was a three hour show, but we only had about maybe like 18 or 22 minutes of Alan. The rest of playing clips. Yeah, clips. Tossing the clips. Right, right. And I remember him calling me late one night and he'd been drinking and he just says, this isn't really a show. And, 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 but, but here's what happened is, is he began to expand. Like we we're supposed to do like a 30 second toss from one, you know, you've just been watching Buster Keaton in a movie from 1929. Next, we're going to have a clip from George Carlin's last HBO special. He, we just started doing comedy bits and, and where we'd supposed to do 30 seconds, we started doing a minute, two minutes, three minutes. And what you all did that was so enlightened was as Alan began to show, this is where the life is, this is where the talent is, you began to take away the clips. You began to have fewer clips per hour and more Alan or more Higgins boys or more Rachel Sweet or more. 
Tommy Sledge or uh, Rich Hall or, or you know, whoever was the, those first round of, of, of talents. And that's where the life was. And you were wise enough to see that's where the life was. Yeah, and let, it, it let was, it replace. It was wisdom. And it was also, I mean, you mentioned improvisation. We were trying to put this channel together and we, as I said, we went in with certain ideas, but it was all improvisational. Vinny knows that. I mean, I went to work every day saying, okay, let's do less of what's not working and more of what is working. And that, yeah. that wasn't just in, 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 you know, Alan's show or some of the other shows. That was in everything we were doing. Yeah. Just like, where is this network going to be? You and that was live off of police Academy clips. I mean, we were running comedy clips from things that weren't even really our cup of tea comedy wise. So yeah, well, there's a whole story behind that, which is in the book. So HBO downtown studios was the, you know, HBO was a network at the time where they ran movies that had just been in theaters and stand-ups comedy specials. Right. But now here they were launching a basic comedy channel, this pay network who never had to deal with advertisers and now was dealing with a basic comedy channel. And Scott was at a facility where the camera was almost in the middle and in one direction was the Rachel Sweet show. And then you turn the camera to the right and you have Rich Hall's Onion World and then Sports Monster and then a little insert set for Alan Haiti night after night. And the audience of one getting back to that, Scott, that was a great innovation. That was the question. That was the question. So what, so we were in this empty studio and we just thought, and but we, we started getting fan mail right away. We started getting people who were fanatics and because... Most of us lived in Manhattan and we couldn't get, we couldn't actually view the channel in Manhattan. Nick Bakai, I think, who lived in Queens was the only person who worked on the staff who could actually get the, the show in his, in his apartment. And, and so we kind of treated it like the whole thing, like, a, like an off-Broadway show, like maybe 500 people are watching. Uh, but we, then we began to attract, because Alan was just a great personality, really smart, really funny. And, and, it began to attract all these um, all this fan mail, and so then we got this idea that why don't we have uh, we'll invite one person to come to the studio and they will be our audience of one, and we'll have a little red uh, you know rope, we'll have a little velvet rope, and we'll have the one chair, and we got you know we, actually we had two chairs, they sat in one and the other was kept empty, and and then Alan usually second segment he would interview who was in the studio that day as the audience of one, and and then by the end we and then and then after about a year of doing this or maybe more, we rented a big space and we had an audience of one reunion, where we got about a hundred people who'd been audience of one and here they all were in one place and it was like. It was like Comic-Con or something where people who are, who are nerds and fanatics on a certain level could be with other uh, of their kind. And Scott, how, that, how were you able to book such big names? Because at the time, again, we were living with old comedy clips. We had nothing new. And then here we are, Seinfeld is on our network. Like that was a big deal. So well, what happened was, well, first of all, Alan was a very respected stand-up comic. So people like Jerry Seinfeld or Paul Reiser or Larry Miller, other people, I mean, they, they all knew and respected Alan. Um, so that, that helped us. Marty Montgomery was the, was the, was the talent booker. Um, and, and so we would, uh, so, so a lot of the people though, I will say, they weren't big names at the time. We had a lot of people before they really became famous. Like when we had Jerry on, 
the first time we had Jerry on, I forget how many times we had him on, but the first time we had him on, Seinfeld had 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 the first season was four episodes. They were like a replacement. And then the second season was like six, like midway through the season or something. So he was in that realm where a few people loved the show and got it yet, but it hadn't found its audience yet. And the show was kind of on the bubble. There was talk that it was, that it was they were completely gonna get canceled. on the bubble for the first yeah. two or three years. They yeah. were going to get canceled. Yeah. Let me mention, uh, because you, you mentioned it just a second ago, Vinny, Sports Monster. Let me just describe how that came about because um, uh, it, 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 it can never happen again. It can never happen again. So here, here's what happens is because the format of the channel is all these clips and I was a big baseball fan and I started thinking about, um, and then one day I was watching maybe a Met game and there was a rain delay and they would, some, and they would put in old programming and then they come back, oh, we're still in rain delay. Now, please watch this, uh, you know, Marlon Perkins or something, watch <laughs> this. So then I began to think, what if we did a format? There was a baseball game and it starts and, a rain, and, and rain comes. And so the, the announcers have to keep throwing to the comedy clips. And, the, and so the original notion was called rain delay. That's right, and, and I remember that. 115 interstitials over a year or so and they were all three minutes long and they and and then at one point they were actually folded in the way that that the simpsons was folded into tracy Ullman. it was folded into night after night who were your hosts on the rain delay joe bolster john Heyman, and nick bakai yeah i remember that yeah and, and our first big get our first big get was bob costas who in that little um in that little conference room where we all used to eat lunch. Uh, we set up this, we set up a Bob Costas radio show and had the three guys on. And I remember he was taping later on Mondays. He would tape all day, he would tape five shows. Come to, from St. Louis, he'd come to New York Sunday night, tape five shows at Rockefeller Plaza. And then he would fly back. Well, one day he said, I won't fly back. I'll come down and do this show. Anyway, I spent maybe 20 minutes with, and he's still a really good friend. I spent maybe 20 minutes with him telling him the background bios of Joe, who was uh, just on the verge of a Hall of Fame career, not quite, but huge ego. John Heyman, journeyman, Joe Garagiola type. And then, and then Nick Bakai was like the guy who never played the game, but he was the lifetime announcer and the enthusiast and kind of brings a boyish enthusiasm to everything. Anyway, so, I, so Bob's getting into makeup and he's changing into a new coat and I'm telling him all this, and then the most astounding thing, we go into this little room, we start taping, and I forget what the premise of the bit was, but it was like, he, these were actual people who he knew, oh. and he was feeding them. He was talking about the one time that John Heyman, the journeyman, was traded in between games of a doubleheader from one <laughs> team to the other team. Talk about improv. So terrible. You no, know, he's very you funny. Know? He is really yeah. funny. Yeah, yeah, but he, but he gave such validity to that project and that and then when it went to a half hour we called it sports monster we then then it went for i think two seasons yeah you uh, know what think about this i mean you already started this this was an improvisational network and i'm trying to think if as you're describing it i'm realizing how unique it was at the time and maybe ever where almost anything could sort of bubble up from anywhere yeah. and find a place on this network because we just wanted to be comedy that, that's exactly right. Well, let me let me uh, then finish how this thing came about was 
once the, the comedy channel started on November 15th, 1989. Correct. Okay, then you guys all had to go, all the big wigs had to go to uh, the TCAs in LA. Right. And so I realized that the crew, all of our production crew was still on salary for a week. So I went to Bill Aiken, who was kind of the overall uh, production I man. remember Bill. Bill yeah. Okay. And, and so um, I said to Bill, I've got this idea. And what about if while everyone else has gone for a week, what about we bring in, Nick Bakai was already there. He was already on salary. I was already on salary. What about we bring in these two standups who I know, John and, and Joe, and on Friday, we tape a pilot. And when everybody comes back from LA the next week, we show them something. And, um, and, and so, so he said, I'll give you $8,000. <laughs> and so that was our budget to do a 30, we, originally it was gonna be, um, we had this, the, the rain delay notion, but we were originally planning a 30 minute show because he said, that's what you should do. So, so then we did 30 minute show. Then we showed it to everybody when we got back. And then that's when somebody, maybe it was Stu, said, let's do this as interstitials right now. We'll put it on all over the channel. Then, we, then when the clips all went away, that's when we made it into a half hour and it lasted two years. Night After Night started on Comedy Channel and then you, when we merged and became Comedy Central, do you remember that dark period where- Oh, I certainly do because, well, uh, well and, and before that, what happened was as some of the other projects got canceled in this studio that had six different sets, Right, Alan began to expand. <laughs> so, so as Tommy Sledge, let's say, went away, uh, Alan, who had his set that was kind of like he had a cot and a desk, we we expanded to include. And this was Sue Fellow's idea to like include like an interview space. So so eventually it went from like six sets to like maybe one or two sets. Short attention span theater became one. And then eventually all the other original shows went away. Rich went on to other things. Um, Rachel Sweet went away and the Higgins boys went away. And, um, uh, and, and so Alan kind of became the studio. Um, so then we knew, that, we knew that nobody was watching because if I'm correct, Art, what I remember is people did not want to offend Viacom, which was coming up with Ha, on April 1st, 1990. Correct. So they didn't want to like offend Viacom by taking Comedy Channel, but they didn't want to offend HBO by taking Ha. The cable systems. By the cable yeah. systems. And, and nobody wanted to have two comedy channels. Right, and that started the comedy wars, the comedy the channel comedy, wars. Right, right, right. And eventually led to a merger, but this, there was this long time where I was still on salary. And, but, and because night after night was not canceled, and I would come into the office for, I don't know, for a couple of hours a day for it seemed like weeks and weeks and months waiting for this announcement of this merger between the two so that it could continue. Um, See, that's interesting that you remember it that way because my recollection is slightly different. We were in the trenches and we were going head to head with these guys. I mean, I thought we were winning. I thought we, we had a bigger audience, which we did because we were starting to get some Nielsen information. I thought we had a better concept, which we did because they were playing, you know, a lot of sitcoms, old sitcoms and stuff. And we were doing the kind of innovative things you were talking about. 
And we had Mystery Science Theater 3000. We also had stumbled on, if you remember this, the ratings power of stand-up. We did a stand-up marathon. That's right. On on and Memorial we, Day. It was like right. a big deal. Scott, I don't know if you remember this. In some ways, it was depressing because suddenly these, you know, HBO had a huge collection of stand-up specials that we always chopped up into little pieces, but now we strung them all together. And in some ways, it was like, wow, why are we spending all this money on original programming in theory when these stand-up specials are killing it? And our numbers like tripled at that point. So we had to find the balance between... Yeah, right. But that was that was... That just gave us the insight that was, you know, seems obvious now that we had to turn up the dial on stand-up comedy that was on the channel, right. which we did. But we, I personally went right up to the point where I got a phone call in, I guess, late November, it might've been after Thanksgiving, where they said, okay, they're merging the channels. And I, I, yeah, maybe we thought about the fact that it was coming possibly, but we were lobbying against it. There was a, we wrote, I think it was Galen Jones is the guy's name. He, he wrote a huge memo saying, here's why we should not merge the channels. So yeah, it was kind of on the table because everything was on the table, but we thought we were going to prevail. And so when it came down that we were merging, I was, I was kind of crestfallen. But the good news is we had a lot more going original programming than they yeah, did. Absolutely. So that's yeah. why a lot of our stuff survived, including night after night that made it to the new network. Yeah, right. Yeah. Both Night After Night and Sports Monster both made it to the new right. network. Sports Monster for one more season, Night After Night for a couple more. So night, yeah, because Night After Night uh, ended after the election in 92. Would and then you transitioned to, uh, we called it internally PI. Art, you're the one that had the meeting with with Bill Maher, right? The original yeah, Bill Maher, Bill Maher pitched the show to me. Yeah, well, what happened was, um, Bill and Will Durst hosted an election night special November of 1992. And Bill did such a great job. He had been actually a, 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 a real a, a night after night guest. And I remember him remarking sitting in the studio during one of our breaks, because we had commercial breaks obviously on basic cable. And he, and he said to Alan, there's such an incredible vibe in this studio. Um, or something to that effect. And I remember thinking, well, that's, I mean, we're, that's what we're creating. That's what we've labored to create is this supportive, nurturing vibe. Um, anyway, so, so then after my, and, and see art also, I might not have been given full intelligence on some of the things were happening above my pay grade at the time. Mm -hmm. So I might've heard some, I could have heard a rumor. I could have heard a rumor from Pat Whitney. Um, and um and, and so uh, I don't know if some of the things I, I know as they came down, I'm not sure of, the, of, of what the thinking was behind them. But what I heard was that people were so impressed by the work that Bill did on the election night special, um, which by the way, at the same time, right an hour before, Al Franken did a special in Studio A next door while Bill, Bill and Will were on the sixth floor then they did so there were that was our state of the back. union that was yeah, the state right. of the union that well it couldn't have back. it couldn't have been the same time as the election because the state of the union was at the beginning of the year it was it was during the presidential state of the union address yeah but i think but i think that bills was during the election is yeah is that's, that's and, my yeah bill and will yeah then there was the notion from bill of what format might be interesting to you and do you have any ideas for a show featuring you and so he wrote up this three-page memo 
on, I remember the first sentence was, this show is like um, the McLaughlin group on acid was that phrase that came out of that first paragraph. And this is exactly like the McLaughlin group, except not like it at all. And, and it was a description of, I mean, there were three or four topics um, that he put in there that were in our first season. Were you part of this at this point, Scott? Like, how did you officially get involved with Bill? Um, well, because I was still, after Sports Monster came into being and Night After Night was still running, and I was actually then even developing other stuff, Bridget Potter said, let's take you off of salary and let's put you on HBO staff. Got it. So, so all during this transition time and, and all during this time, on, I'm on HBO staff. So, um, so then Bill and I were, there was a meeting arranged between the two of us after Nancy Geller and Bill had done a pitch then probably for Art. And I, I don't know who else was in the room, Art. Mitch Semmel um, probably. Yeah, it was Mitch Semmel. Yeah. It was me and Mitch yeah. Semmel. I can tell you about it after that, finish that this. We didn't, that again, this is so unusual. And whenever I tell it to anybody, they can't believe it. There was never a politically incorrect pilot. It was an immediate uh, order for 24 episodes. And because we were going to tape them all um, in a row, every topic had to be evergreen because we didn't know when it was going to air. So we taped, my memory is we taped maybe end of April, maybe through May. We would, we would tape two or three in a day, maybe two in a day. Uh, so six in a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday maybe take a week off, then do another six, then do another six. So I think, I think it went from end of April to beginning of June. The first episode of Politically Incorrect aired on July 25th, uh, and that would have been 1993. And, um, and then the first tape day went so well. And I still remember the, the first moment when I thought this is, hap this is what this needs to be. And it was Tom Arnold was on with uh, Roger Ailes, I think Curtis Sliwa or Lisa Sliwa, one of the two, and I forget. And Robin Quivers, I think. Rob, well, Robin Quivers was on the first show that aired. Got it. But it was the twelfth show we taped, so so yeah, we didn't we didn't show them in order of taping, but the first tape day went so well, and it was a moment when Tom Arnold made Bill laugh uncontrollably, and I remember thinking, "This is magic," and the next day, Mitch called and said, "We're going to pick you guys up for a second season." So. And, and the second season was 45. So first season of 24 hadn't even aired yet. And we got picked up for a second season of 45. The third season was gonna be 181 shows over 13 months. Um, but what we did was the, the 12th show, the 12th and 13th shows, Jerry Seinfeld did them. And with Robin Quivers and Larry Miller, and I'm forgetting the fourth, that could have been one of the Sliwas, but, but, or, I forget who the fourth one was, but um, but that was the first show we aired, the 12th show. And then, because Tom Arnold had such a great time on the first taping, he goes back to LA, tells Roseanne, you've never had so much fun. She calls Bill in the middle of the night and says, I wanna come on. <laughs> so she was on the 23rd and 24th shows we taped, one of which had Roger Clinton. Uh, I remember was, was with her on one of them. Um, anyway, so that was the second show that we aired. And Roseanne was super hot at the time. Well, and, and Jerry deal. Seinfeld. So in other words, our first two shows, we had the two hottest people on TV. Yeah. Our first two episodes. And then, and then we would show them once a week on, I think, Friday nights. 
until we got through the 24, but by that time we were starting work on the second season. Explain the transition, first of all, behind the scenes, how you ended up going to ABC. Well, there was a there was a transition period where uh, you know, Bill had Bill's management locked him into um, you know, either one or two seasons, three, whatever it was. But at the end, and then also remember, he was living in Los Angeles. So he's coming back and living in a hotel during the entire first season, during the entire second season, and during the entire third season, which lasted 13 months. By the time we got to the 14th, he said, I I don't, I want to be sleeping in my own bed every night. And so so we between 95 and 96, we and, and our deal was going to end in 96. But between 95 and 96, we moved 16 people from New York out to Los Angeles. Whenever we had visited Los Angeles, we had uh, taped at the CBS Broadcast Center. So that's where we then had the show. So we just moved the set. We had almost the whole staff. Um, and, and, and then the set's the same. We all knew the studio. So in a way, it was like very little transition, but but Comedy Central knew, and it was Doug Herzog by this time, he knew we were going to have one year left before we probably were going to move because we were being courted by um, CBS, ABC, and then also HBO was saying, if you want to come on HBO, because they were at this time doing uh, alternating Chris Rock and Dennis Miller. But each of them only did 10. You know, so on, on ABC, you guys were on at midnight. Remind me. So they had Nightline still, right? When you went to, to network TV, Nightline was at 1130. It was never a good fit on ABC because they had not had late night talk since Dick Cavett. And before that, Joey Bishop. <laughs> so they had no idea as to how to handle it. And, and we were always lost. Like at the beginning of a new season, they would take over the different street lamps and you'd see these banners with ABC Sports and it would list, you know, wide world of sports and all the different sports programming. Then ABC Drama and you'd see all their drama, ABC Comedies. And I keep driving, looking for our banner was never <laughs> there because we had no advocate. We, we had no dedicated advocate and we weren't part of a department. There, was, they, there wasn't a late night division there at- uh, There wasn't a late night at, division. At, at, so at it wasn't like- and yeah, there's no executive in charge of that who was, you know, championing. They're probably doing well, double duty at that point. Well, but but here's the other thing that happened. Uh, and this is what Letterman learned when he went from NBC to CBS. Um, NBC has had complete late night clearance forever. Going back to Jack Parr. Jack Parr originally did a show that was an hour and 45 minutes long. but And he had every NBC affiliate. Well, it goes from Jack Parr to uh, Steve Allen, to Johnny Carson, or it started with Steve Allen, goes to Jack Parr, goes to Johnny Carson. So, so when let's say Jay gets the Tonight Show, he's in 100% of NBC homes and it all at the unified time. When Letterman went to CBS, I think he was only cleared in somewhere between 50 and 60% of CBS households. Yeah, I have a story about that because I was there shortly after. Yeah, yeah, that's Initially, right. Initially, Letterman was promised, listen, we're getting football. CBS is getting football. It's going to be great. We're going to clear you a lot more. And that happened. Then just when I got there, CBS lost football to Fox, right? And in Detroit, as an example, they switched affiliations. So Detroit, a major market, a major CBS market, 
they they switched to Fox and we had to buy a UHF channel. <laughs> Right. Oh, that had no news division. So yeah. they so we had to run Letterman at 11 o'clock. So, yeah, you, you, that's exactly the situation there. So I want to mention at ABC, they, they probably had a good clearance for Nightline. But after that, it's reruns. Right. Of right. Well, well, and here's what. And, and it's even worse than that, because in some stations, for instance, Chicago, Oprah was on the was on ABC. Her syndicated show was on ABC during the day, but she had a deal. You got to run her after Nightline, right? For a second run that day, so there were so many places where, and you know, both of you know, after a certain point at night, uh, the, the the numbers keep getting keep dropping because people go go to sleep. So if if Nightline is you know ten thirty to eleven and Oprah's on at eleven and we come on Chicago at twelve. We're going to get a much smaller audience than Letterman or Leno were able to dip into a ten. And a different kind of audience. Right. And a different kind of audience. The other thing is, Ted Koppel, um, who we never had a good relationship with, would would run over his first couple of segments. So by time he got to the end of the show, he would it was a six minute commercial block before it came back to him to say good night. Well, that's great. That's great to keep the audience here. He would, he six would minutes lose our audience. He would never do a, a, a passing of the baton, which he has done, which he then did for Jimmy Kimmel, but he would never do a passing of baton. That's all for Nightline tonight. Here's Politically Incorrect with Bill Maher. So, so we had all these affiliates who had long running contracts with to show MASH or to show the odd couple or whatever, and we had to wait until those contracts expired. So our first numbers collectively for Politically Incorrect on ABC were not impressive. Uh, over time, of course, they built as we got better time slots, but it was never ideal. And I left, we came on in 97, I was there in 97, 98, 99, and I left the show in 99 because I was asked to be signing to, to, to sign a new four-year contract. And I thought I've done 1100 shows. Um, I, I think I've plateaued. I think I've used up every idea I've got. I think it's been six months since there's been a new interesting guest who I was interested in having come on the show. So I gave four months notice, you know, trained everybody. Seven people on the staff said, we'd like to come with you to whatever you do next. I took no one. And, um, and but everything kept going fine until 9-11 and that and I wasn't around for that. I, you know, Bill would call me, uh, or some people from ABC would still keep calling me for advice on how to handle things after there was a, a uproar. After after 9-11, and also in that era when we're on commercial television, you could have a morning DJ get viewers to call a sponsor and threaten to cancel. And, and sponsors would pull out and you could have a show that was actually getting a lot of viewers, but it was hard to get sponsors. Did you also have a lot of standards and practices issues while you were at ABC? Like just language, because on Comedy Central, you probably didn't curse a lot, but you could, in theory, use language that you could never use on broadcast television. Well, I, I was, I was uh, after each day of taping, because we were doing day and date for ABC, we'd have to, we'd have to, Bill would always go over. I'd have to go down to edit and bring the show to exactly to time. Then I had one of the associate producers arguing with standards and practices. So when I got done editing, I would then go in like the closer, 
<laughs> like mm -hmm. if, if, if the other person had not been able to get them to agree to everything, he would then say to me, uh, Doug Wilson, he would then say to me, okay, they agreed to everything except this one. I said, okay, I'm going to argue that one. Okay. And, and I think in the, in the 97, 98, 90, in the three years of ABC, I think I lost one argument. What were the standards and practices issues? I mean, it wasn't language, was it? It was just language? No, it must have been issues. Uh, it could uh, be. It could be. It could be language, though. We would bleep it. It could be douchebag. He could say douchebag or scumbag, and that's a problem. Yeah. Well, also, what could also become a problem was if it was unmistakable for the viewer to figure out what he was saying. The, the context was also something that's an issue. Sometimes it was an issue about offending sponsors, or people yeah. who you know people who advertised on ABC. Sometimes somebody would throw out a fact that we couldn't maybe in the days before internet, we couldn't immediately back it up. And, and it, so it might've been defaming. Ah, right. and, we, and we couldn't substantiate, let's say. Right, but you, you guys didn't really change the way you were doing your shows because of standards and practices. Oh, no, just, no, 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 no. You just no. did the shows and then said, okay. We just did the show and then we got to run the gauntlet of uh, standards yeah, and practices. It hasn't changed, but it gets harder. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure it was harder in some ways than it was at Comedy Central. Oh, because Comedy Central, by the time we, I mean, we quickly became the flagship. So we, you know, just a lot of things worked around us on Comedy uh, Central. And that wasn't the case on ABC. It was hard for us to get ABC talent uh, to come onto the show, stars of their sitcoms. It, it was, or, or their dramas, it was hard to get them on. And usually that's what networks want. Yeah. When right. I was at Letterman, they would push people on us. So when you left the ABC Politically Incorrect, what did you do before you reunited with Bill again at HBO One Real Time? Well, when I was weighing whether or not to sign another contract, I read in the trades that Candace Bergen had signed a deal to do a talk show for the soon to be um, invented Oxygen Media. And I had such ongoing nostalgia for the beginning of Comedy Channel and then Comedy Central that I thought, well, um, being on a network serving women's programming, that's gotta be the opposite of doing Politically Incorrect with Bill for seven years. Uh, and then also I, you know, Sports Monster and Al and I was on very testosterone laden uh, mm -hmm. shows. And I thought, yeah, and then I knew a lot of people who, and a lot of my friends had written for Murphy Brown and they loved Candace Bergen. And so I called my agent and said, could you get me a meeting with her? So I, I went over to her house in, uh, in uh, Coldwater Canyon and I met her, I'd never met her before. I said, um, you've signed this deal to do a talk show, what scares you? And she just started listing. What if I don't like the person I'm talking to? What if I forget the next question? What if, what if, what if? What? And so I listened to the whole thing and I said, you know what? I don't think we have any problems here. I think that I could get you to be so comfortable in the same way that Bill had never been a host. Um, and so when we were starting Politically Incorrect, I did 10 practice shows with him where I would bring four people in, we would take two or three topics, I would prep all the individual guests, I would cue him in with a theme song, uh, I would cue him out, I'd give him a, a, a account for, uh, we're over in the segment, we've got to go to a commercial, he would then toss out, we come back, we'd give a new se segment. So, so by the time we got to the first tape day, that first tape day with Tom Arnold, it was like he'd been doing the show for a year. So I did the same thing with Candace Bergen. What I started doing was I started bringing people over to her house 
And we would sit in her kitchen, in her breakfast nook. And the first person I brought over was Michael Patrick King, who had been a writer on Murphy Brown, so she knew him. But when he was on Murphy Brown, he was still in the closet and he'd come out of the closet since then and Sex in the City had started. So, so we had stuff to talk about. So what I said was, okay, Candace, we're gonna bring Michael over. You're gonna, um, I'm gonna go over with you some questions. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna talk to him for 45 minutes, but we're gonna divide it in half. And halfway through, I'll give you a signal and you can say, Michael, hold your thought. We're gonna be back in just a minute, then we'll come back. So it was two segments and she did great and she loved it. The second person I brought was, do either of you know who Karen Finley is? Karen Finley is a, is a notorious, uh, she's brilliant performance artist who became notorious because Jesse Helms wanted to rescind her grant from the National Endowment from the Arts. Oh, I remember because that. Because he thought that everything she did was, was pornographic. Anyway, the next time I bring her over and I said, Candace, okay, this time we're gonna divide into three segments. This time I'm gonna have a little boom box with our theme song. So I'm gonna start playing the music and then I'm gonna cue you. And then as you start talking, I'll fade out. And then I'm also gonna bring a little uh, mini cam and we're gonna start taping it. And so that's gonna be your main camera. Uh, so anyway, what I started doing over a period of time, again, 10, was getting her more and more used to the, to the game conditions. And then the set we built for her on the stages of uh, Sunset Gower was a mock-up, a, a, almost a replica, we tried to do a replica, of her penthouse, of her apartment in on Central Park South, so that she would feel as at home as possible. And the first guest we had on the show was Jodie Foster. So I called Jodie ahead of time and said, um, I went, it's her first show, and this is like her apartment, can you bring housewarming gifts? Great so idea. she brought fuzzy, fuzzy slippers and a lava lamp. Uh. <laughs> and, and so anyway, so, uh, I just had a great time with Candace at the rap party for the first season. Uh, she was signed to do, we we're going to do 60 shows, but she had an out after 20. And Oxygen was owned by Oprah, Carsey Warner, and uh, Jerry Laybourne. And so Tom Warner said to me, she's got an out after 20. If you get to show 21, you will have earned your salary for the year. So we got her to, not only got her to 60, we got her to agree to a second season. And at the rap party for the first show, she said, this man I've been seeing, Marshall Rose, I'm gonna get married, we're gonna get married and I'm going to move to New York. Uh, but since you left Politically Incorrect for me, I owe you a year. So I will do one more season here and then I'll go back to New York. And if you wanna come back, I'd love to keep doing this show with you. And I said, well, I've got two young daughters, really can't do that. So, um, you know, but, but, but they have an office in New York and they'll find you another producer. And so she did, I think, once she went back, I think she did maybe 15, but did not have as good of a time. And so that was the end of it. It could have gone on forever because she was great at doing this. Did you stay with the network? I My contract was about to run out. Oh, this is an interesting story. My contract was about to run out. I had a two-year contract. Um, and about a month or maybe two months before uh, my contract was expiring, uh, I got a call and they said to me, they had, they had signed Carrie Fisher to do a show replacing the, the Candace time slot. And they had a different uh, producer who was very good, someone who I know is a friend of mine. Anyway, they did our first show with Ben Affleck. At the end of that taping, Ben went into rehab. <laughs> it, was, it was so chaotic. And they said, well, look, we've already got scheduled. The next show is gonna be 
uh, with George Lucas at Skywalker Ranch. And she doesn't want to work with this other producer again. Will you take over? Because we've got you for six more weeks. And this is going to come in the, the time frame. And I said, yes, I will do that. That sounds great. And uh, also, I will bring in another producer with me. And then my contract's up and uh, he can become the producer and I will give a, 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 a seamless transition for Carrie. So anyway, so, so I hadn't really known Carrie. She was on Candace's show once, that's where I met her. But, but then what I did was I, I called up George Lucas's office and I said, I asked, do you have any footage from when Carrie auditioned for Star Wars? <laughs> And they got back a few days later and said, not only do we have it, it's in black and white and she's opposite Harrison Ford. And I said, do you know if George has looked at that since it was done? They said, he, he has not. And we didn't, you told us not to tell anybody. We didn't tell anybody. So what we did unbeknownst to George was we set up a monitor with this audition tape queued up. And then we went up to Skywalker Ranch, which is this, it, it's just incredible. We got there the night before. And you drive in this very nondescript uh, rural uh, road. You have to open up the gate, drive in, close the gate behind you, drive down this road. And the first thing you come to is a fire department. He has his own fire department. <laughs> and then you come to these series of bungalows and each of them is dedicated to someone who is an influence on him. So Carrie stayed in the John Ford bungalow I stayed in the Windsor McKay. Somebody else stayed in the, in the Frank Capra. And, um, and the keys you got to this, they, they made a point of, we're gonna collect the key. You can't keep the key as a souvenir. We're gonna collect all the keys at the end. So I didn't get to keep mine. Uh, anyway, then, then we drive up and it's like going to Main Street of Disneyland is the main, there's this main Victorian mansion. And what we planned was, Carrie's going to be in the car. George is going to be um, uh, at, outside the front door and they haven't seen each other in years and it's going to be great. So I went in early that morning, like eight o'clock or 8.30 and George comes into makeup and George says to me, look, um, I've got John Williams is coming because he's going to show me, play me for me the music for the next Star Wars. And, um, and this is right after 9-11 was the, was, the, was the time period. It was a very nervous time. So anyway, so he's coming at like... Um, He's coming like at 11, something like that. Um, so we're going to tape and I'm doing this only for Carrie. I don't care about you. I'm doing it for Carrie and <laughs> I'm going to, and, and so we start at 930. I'm going to walk out at 1030. And I said, George, I will, I will let you know when we hit 1030. And as soon as you want to leave, we will, we will let you leave. And we thank you. We thank you for inviting us here. Anyway, the taping starts and, and, this is a little bit tales out of school, but we were told you can compliment George on anything at the Skywalker Ranch except one thing. You can't compliment him on the stained glass in the room where you're gonna be taping, which by the way, was the room where Bill Moyers interviewed Joseph Campbell. Why can't we compliment him on the stained glass? Because the guy who did the stained glass was the guy who stole his wife. Oh my God. Awkward. <laughs> So, so we, we start the taping and it's going great. And around 10.15, we take breaks, you know, for commercials. And at one point I said to Carrie, throw to the audition tape now. So around 10.20 or so, or so, she throws to the tape 
and we start seeing the, this in, impossibly young Carrie Fisher and impossibly young Harrison Ford audition. And I'm watching George Lucas and he's just melting as he watches this. And so it goes to 10.30 and I said, now George, it's 10.30, do you wanna stop now? And he said, no, let's keep going. Nice. He went for another hour. He kept wow. John Williams waiting. That's incredible. And then he took all of us to lunch and lunch was behind the room where we'd been taping this incredible library with the stained glass ceiling. And then he had like ice cream parlor out of Main Street Disneyland. It's where we had our lunch and he just spent the whole time talking to us. And then after lunch, he met with John Williams. What a, what a great experience. And what I love about this, Scott, is, you know, in your heart, I mean, you've been, you're an executive producer, you're a writer, but you think like a segment producer. You're thinking about the show within the show because every interview is its own unique self-contained yeah. element. And it's wonderful how your mind works. So uh, without spending even more time with Politically Correct, because it's kind of come in and out of your career, take us through how you reunited with Bill for real time. For the, were you there for the launch of real time on HBO? So now, you know. Yeah, oh yeah, sure, sure. Um, so uh, not because of me, but after I left Politically Incorrect, it was canceled after, not immediately after 9-11 when there was a big brouhaha and, and on, when the show came back on 9-17, uh, 2001, but it lasted through the, the following June and then was canceled. And then he was interested in working with HBO and called me one day to ask me if I would be interested in producing again. I said, yes. And when we started on HBO, we just did 10. It was for 20 a year, but we did 10 and we were off for three months. Then we do it uh, three or four months. Then we're on for another 10. Then we're off for three or four months. So every time we took a break, everyone thought we were canceled. So, so the publicist stopped presenting movie stars or the publishers stopped presenting authors or people in congressional offices stopped mentioning uh, politicians. And so, and so when this show really took off, when real time really took off was when HBO made the commitment to 35 a year. Was it a different and, format? Was, was the intention to do it differently than the McLaughlin group format? of? Oh, 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 we had, in fact, I just did a, I did a, a memo a couple of years ago where I lit, went through and I enumerated, our goal with, with real time was to do everything different, the opposite of politically incorrect. Got it. So I think there were a total of 11 things that I did different. I mean, it was live, we could have satellites. It was um, an hour, not a half hour. We put the, what is essential. I mean, we have a monologue, there's a monologue at the beginning of real time, but really the, the, the crown jewel is the editorial at the end. So the show builds. For Politically Incorrect, the show started off as hot as possible, went to the to first topic, was gonna to be the, as hot as possible and kind of wound down as right. we got to the end of the show. In fact, the end was a jib camera pulling back as the credits rolled and then we went off the air. So real-time builds, Politically Incorrect is more the standard talk show which it starts off as hot as possible. And then, and then the best is done first, next best is second. There's no sense of, of building to something because you know you're losing viewers that late at night. And with real time, uh, um, you're not worried. I mean, you, I'm sure your numbers were good because the show is it's still running and you were still part of that for many years, but ratings weren't an issue anymore. It was just really 
as long as Bill's happy. And- we, this was true on Politically Incorrect and true on Real Time, that we would fluctuate sometimes by what's in the news. So if you've got a hot story that runs for months like um, Monica Lewinsky or OJ Simpson, the ratings can just skyrocket. Um, as, uh, sometimes after a national election, there is a drop off on viewership then. So let's say 2005, we came, um, real time came on March of 2003, right before the Gulf War. Is, is, is that right? Around there? Yeah. And um, uh, we, um, and, and, and so I remember after 2005, there was a sense of if we're on the bubble, if we're going to get renewed. But really the, the change was, and I forget what year it was, but when the network went to 35, and that means we're on new shows 35 weeks a year, but we also had our repeats on the other times. So we never went away. Right. So everybody was always pitching us people. So we were always, we had no trouble booking after that. While you're producing that, when did you, I'm, I'm, I want to talk about the curb, the discussion, because I'm fascinated by that. Kind of, who had the idea, you know, who had oh, to pitch that yeah. to Larry David or who pitched who? Oh, oh yeah. Well, here's, here's what happened. And this was actually curb. The discussion was done during the last time we had a long break from real time, because I would do shows in the middle. Like if we, if we were doing 10, take three or four months off, I did, um, four breaks. I did a show with Lewis Black called Root of All Evil on Comedy Central. Um, you know, I do other projects, do a special. I did one for TBS called Earth to America. Uh, and then Curb was the last one. And that's when HBO decided we're going to do 35 a year and everything changed. Uh, what happened was I got a call from Larry and he said, I have sold Curb Your Enthusiasm to the TV Guide Network on basic cable. But the trouble is all the curbs are of a different length. And so what they want to do is they want to edit them all down to being 30 minutes. But he said, but I got the idea. What about if we had a discussion following the episode, we could have all the episodes be an hour. And, and let's say if the episode goes 40 minutes, you could have a 20 minute discussion. And what we could do is have the people, like if there was a, um, an episode involving uh, Larry and Judaism, well, let's have a rabbi on the, the panel. That's brilliant. Or or there or there's a or there's a therapist. So let's get a psychiatrist on the panel. So here's so this was one of the most logistically fun things I've ever done, which is there at that moment there were 64 episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm. I filmed, we taped 64 discussions, or maybe 62, because I think there were two episodes that were an hour long that didn't need any more filler. I think we did 60 or 62 in I think two weeks of taping. Wow. Where did you do that? And what we did was we filmed at Hollywood and Highland at, in this little studio the TV Guide had where it had this panoramic shot of up, up the uh, um, Hollywood freeway. Um, and we get four chairs. What we do is, uh, and the host was Susie Essman. Oh, wonderful. I love, yeah, I love Susie. Yes, and we did stand up at the at the comic strip together. We were in an improv group. Uh, we were both MCs at the comic strip. So I'd known her forever. And and so um, so anyway, so here's what we do. Uh, we, we organize, we're gonna do like 10 of these in a day. And so we've got like these different stations. So one station is where the cars are gonna arrive. And we had all these people with uh, like Facebooks 
of all the faces of all the people and, and what show they were gonna be on. And then, so they were greeted. Then they were sent up an elevator. Then there was somebody up the elevator to get them there, take them into makeup. Then they were in makeup. While they were in makeup, I was showing another panel that had come earlier. I was showing them the 30 minute or 40 minute episode. While the 40 minute episode's going on, I'm prepping the four guests who are gonna be in the next one so that these four people watch the episode. And as soon as the episode's over, lights come up and we start taping. Remind me, was Larry on camera? He came for the first couple. And then he said to me, I trust you. Wow. And, and didn't great. come back after that. But we had just, we had so many great, we had authors, rabbis, psychiatrists. We had so many good people. And then we had Jerry Seinfeld, Joe Scarborough. Uh, John Hamm was on the first one. Uh, I just remember it was one of these things where everyone wanted to be a part of it and everybody, it was so much fun. And then the end of each day was so exhausting, but, but we got this thing done and then, and then got them all so the TV guy could show Curb in an hour. Have you ever talked about with Larry about finishing the, the last, the next batch? Well, of it's episodes? funny because they've done now, I think they've maybe done three or four seasons since the last one. And the first two, he would say to me, we're gonna to have to do more discussions. <laughs> and then, and the last couple of times I've seen him, he's, he has said, eh, I don't think I want to do anymore. It was just so much fun, but it was like a marathon. It's like, it's like you were throwing a party. Yeah, Monday, take a rest on Tuesday, Wednesday, then take a rest on Thursday, do Friday. That's wonderful. And it's kind of like its own little podcast because right now there are a lot of podcasts that are dedicated to episodes of shows. You were yeah. just doing yeah. it at an incredible achievement. So your career, you know, you, you're doing a lot of this stuff sometimes simultaneously, like, you, you know, you're producing Real Time with Bill Maher and doing these things. And so tell me what's going on now with you because you do have a live theater background. I mean, you, you, you wrote produced and starred in, in not one, but two one-man shows across the world, right? Uh, well, across the across the English-speaking world <laughs> to a certain extent, it's Ireland and Scotland. Okay, well, that's uh, part of the world. And all over, all over the U.S. But, um, but now, yeah, unfortunately, we're in this place now where people aren't doing live performances, but that's kind of what I want to get back to. Right now, I'm developing projects for HBO, and I think there's one new thing I'm going to be announcing in about a month, um, and then there's also something I just pitched to them that I'm waiting to hear back from them on. But in the meantime, I have, I, I have this other play that I did, which is now, it debuted in 2014, and since then it's been in 26 or 27 cities in four countries. And, and then called? I have a finish. The Gospel According to Thomas Jefferson, Charles Dickens, and Count Leo Tolstoy Discord, people call it Discord. And then, um, and then, this, and then this second play that was lined up before pandemic, to be read in, at the Kennedy Center in Washington and the Arden, which is a major regional theater in Philadelphia. And so I was looking to kind of get that done on, on a fast track because the other, because people who've done the first play are wanna hear about the next plays that I do, but now nobody's doing anything. And then actually I'm writing a new play right now that I feel that I'm so excited about. And actually what my life has been like is, um, is, is kind of doing all these talk shows that are very much about what is happening in the news at that moment. And then all, almost all my other projects are historically based. So one play is about Shakespeare, one play is about Oscar Wilde, and the other play is about Jefferson Dickens and Tolstoy. So it's an excuse for me to live in a separate time zone and feel like it's evergreen. It doesn't, it, it, this could, I could get it done a month from now, I could get it done a year from now, but it's evergreen. The thing with plays though, as different 
as they are from television because so many people can see the television you're doing. And by comparison, so few people can end up seeing the plays that you're doing. Does that concern you? My, my attitude for a long time has been uh, the fields stay fertile when you rotate the crops. So if I'm off doing a play and come back to a TV show, I, I come, or, or if I sometimes, if I go off and do a monologue and I haven't performed in a year and I go off and do a monologue, when I come back, I am so much more empathetic with all performers because I have just been reliving the insecurity of being a performer. And, 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 and so I feel like the more different things I do, the more I love all the different aspects of them. That makes a lot of sense. Are, are you, is there something creative that you still want to do that you haven't gotten a chance to do that you hope you can do? Well, the, the one is this next, is the play that I'm writing now, um, which, which I think when it gets done, it's just gonna be, it, and it's about Shakespeare takes place uh, after King James has, has ascended the throne in July of 1603. So this is a, a few years after that, but it's about, it's, it's, it's Shakespeare older than um, Shakespeare in Love, which is the young Shakespeare writing Romeo and Juliet early on in Twelfth Night. This is the older Shakespeare who's been so established, but now he sees his grip on popularity loosening a bit. And, and it's a little bit like when Menudo, let's say, came up and Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones were threatened. That's how Shakespeare <laughs> is. But actually what became, what, what, what became the vogue in London in the 1600s was boy theaters where people would go and it's, and it's kids, you know, younger than 13 playing all the roles. And this was, not only was it something that was really popular, but it was something where people could charge six times as much as Shakespeare was able to charge at the Globe. So these people were able to make a ton of money. Uh, and then also what was happening, like the Rolling Stones, is all of Shakespeare's troupe, these guys he started off with, and they were all in their 20s, now they're all pushing 40. And, and they're all getting a little bit long in the two. They don't want to be working as hard. Some of them want to retire. Some of them break off to form their own theaters. So it's this, so it's, it's, you're watching someone who's trying to sustain success rather than let's say Shakespeare in Love where you're watching someone who's trying to get the first big success and redefine what theater is for an audience. Um, so anyway, um, and then there are just some incredible characters. I'd never known that much, Vinny, you probably know your, your theater history better than I do, but Ben Johnson, who was one of the major Elizabethan playwrights, I never knew much about him, but he was an incredible character. So he's gonna, so he's gonna be in this, and it's just fascinating to read about him. Here's an example. He was, he was, um, he, his his father died a month before he was born. So his mother had a family, single mom. She needed money. The only person who would marry her was a bricklayer. So she was an intellectual. She trains her son in Latin and Greek, but then his bricklayer father wants him to follow in his trade, and so Ben Johnson hates this. He runs away with the English army and they're fighting in the Netherlands. So there's, it's like World War I where there's a no man's land with one army on one side and one army on the other. Ben Johnson, this incredible character, stands up and shouts to the other army, let's do single combat. I will fight any one of your soldiers from the other side. Oh my because God. this is what he had read in the original Greek in the Iliad by Homer. Right. So one 
combatant comes forward from the other army and Ben Johnson not only kills him, he strips his armor like, like Hector in the Iliad and takes it back triumphantly to the English soldiers. This is who Ben Johnson was. And, and, he, and there was another playwright he got mad at and he killed him in a sword fight. That's wonderful. And he was able to talk his way out of being executed. So how far along are you into all of this? Oh, I, it's, uh, the scenario is almost finished. I've got 33 pages of notes. I'm almost done with all the re different research that I feel like I need to do. And then I will just be digging in. Wonderful. So this is, I mean, really, we're not talking one man show anymore. This is full cast. This is. Oh yeah. This would be a big production. Yeah. The name of it, the name of it is I comma will. I will. Oh, nice. Sounds like a novel too. Sounds like a great historical it could be novel. A novel. Could be a novel. Well, and, and, and I'm kind of thinking of either a screenplay or play. Art, don't you feel smarter just talking to Scott right now? <laughs> I can't, I think I feel stupider actually. <laughs> stupider. My IQ feels like I feel, no, I know more. He's like Wikipedia. I know. I can't wait to see, I can't wait to see some York, of this stuff. Yeah. I'm very excited about that. Thank you so much for giving us all this time. And we, I think, I feel that we're leaving a lot on the table. So we may have to do a part two on this conversation. But, you know, I liked the way when you heard about Candace Bergen and you threw your hat in the ring because you thought that was interesting. Are you still like that? Are you still keeping an eye on? Oh, there, there's the, the host of the project that I'm working on is someone who's never done a talk show. But I think that this person has every tool to become kind of spokesperson for his generation. Right, and you can't mention that yet, but that's something that hopefully will be announced soon. Yeah, in the next month or so, I think. You, you've already demonstrated that you could teach people how to be a host. You have, you He's basically the host have a- whisperer. Yeah, the host whisperer. You, you have, a, you have a, a scheme for getting people to be hosts. And that's, that's amazing. Well, thank, thank you very much. And it, it's been my pleasure to work with so many people and I've gotten, two of whom are you and and i've gotten to know so many people and it's been i've been so lucky but if it hadn't been for the comedy channel art bell saying he's he's the here's the hero and tommy schlami saying don't bring in another producer this guy's producing right now i don't know where my career would be i've been yeah, it, would, it would it would be roughly in the same place are we sure that art didn't tell dick beers i think that's my hero because lunch had just come <laughs> You know, it could have been a misunderstanding, but either way, Art, you should be very proud. For I am that. proud. I, I am going to leave our listeners with one thing because I want to bring Scott back. We have to. There's so much we, we need to talk about. And one is the Olympiacs. Yeah. Okay. All we right. did yeah. not talk about the Olympiacs. We're not going to say what it is. Yeah. Teasing the next appearance. Okay. Okay. Very right. important. Very good. Scott, thank you again for being You're very welcome. Us. Thank you, guys. Thank you. It was so great catching up with Scott. I forgot how great he, what a great guy he is. Yeah, no kidding. I haven't seen, you know, as we said, we hadn't seen him in years and years and years. And he has really become one of the most important producers in television. I mean, what he did with uh, Bill Maher and some of the other stuff, I mean, that's classic. It's interesting because in my mind, he was with Bill Maher for 37 years, but there were there was downtime at the beginning. That show wasn't on. It was like 13-week cycles, like he had said. And his experience working with Candace Bergen was terrific and, and getting down to the nitty-gritty on, on helping a person host the show, you know, fi figuring out how to be a good talk show host. And that's why he's in demand and he's always yeah. working. Yeah, really. If I was ever going to do a talk show, man, I'd be calling him up and saying, 
teach me how to be a talk show host because he sounds like he knows how to do it. How about all that theater stuff? <laughs> when can we go see those shows? Yeah, does this guy spread himself thin enough? I mean, my gosh, he's doing like everything at once. He's writing writing plays. He's one-man shows, theater, the whole thing. Historical theater, I which know. You know, involves research, which everybody knows uh, I hate. And, and <laughs> it's just amazing what this guy's doing. He's the Lin-Manuel of comedy. <laughs> Well, it was great to have him here. Yeah, it really was. And Art, uh, I've enjoyed our time together. See you in the next one. You got it. How was that? <laughs>